Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Welcome back everybody to the Almost Sideways podcast. We are so glad you're joining us. This is episode 98. Uh, we are coming at you on Saturday today. We usually record on Sundays. This is Saturday night, 6 p.m. Pacific time. I'm your host, Terry Plucknett. Joining me, Todd Plucknett and Zach Saltz. How has your Saturday been, guys? Lazy, watching football all day. Nice, nice. Yes, uh, much of the same, except not football uh, movies, which we may review on this podcast. Oh, well, there you go. There you go. All right. Well, uh, like I said, this is episode 98. This is our last, like, regular traditional episode before we hit episode 100. And uh, and we mentioned last time we're going to be doing something kind of special for episode 100 that won't be our regular traditional episodes. This is our last one of... Of these with like power rankings and all this stuff for like a month. It's kind of crazy to think about. Anyways, uh, let's hop right into this and get into all the great stuff we're going to be talking about. Uh, Zach, what are you drinking? Oh, I'm drinking something new from the Free State Brewing Company out of fabulous LFK, Lawrence, Kansas. It is called the Alley Oop Dunkel Lager in honor of a basketball season which never happened. But maybe will happen again someday. And uh, it's, it's pretty dynamite. Nice. Yeah, it was it was big news around here for for all the people who drink Free State uh, Brewing Company <laughs> around the world, all of whom are concentrated in the place that I live. See, we we need to get we need to get like our breweries to sponsor us. Like, you need to get Free State to sponsor you. I need to get Ridge Walker to sponsor me. Just for George, fear Georgetown of beer. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Todd, what do you got? Uh. I'm drinking the Carlisle blended Scotch whiskey, and it was. It says it was aged in ex bourbon barrels, and I could totally tell because it has a smoky feeling that isn't like a normal Scotch smokiness. Like it's it's actually really tasty. Very nice, very nice. But yeah, I went to Rich Walker today, and uh, I got. I didn't get a growler. I got a grenade. It's like half a growler, so I'm just drinking straight out of here. This is called a. Uh, or this is their Wayward Wheat. Wheat ale, so it's pretty good. Just like, just like a, almost like a hef type of type of beer, nice and light. You know, on Jersey Shore, they call um, ugly women grenades. That's a little tidbit I did not know. Yeah, but you didn't know that. For your nope. The more you know. The more you know. The more you know. So Todd, I know you always have stuff on in the background while we're uh, while we're recording. What are you watching right now? Uh, well, right now I have on, uh, the game for the Little Brown Jug, Michigan uh, and Mi Minnesota, but I was also watching Talia Tagovailoa and Maryland kind of getting smoked by Northwestern. Nice. I have on World Series Game 4, which the Dodgers are already winning, so. By the time this comes out, the Dodgers may, may be World Series champs. I, you never know. I don't know. My wife, Zach, you, you, you my wife has uh, Grey's Anatomy on in the background. Uh, okay, okay. Season 7. 
the big season, the big reveal with uh, Owen Hunt's backstory in the military and Dr. McDreamy and Gray get married. Sorry, spo- I meant to make this a spoiler-free recap, but I apologize. <laughs> How many times have you watched season seven? Oh, way too many. <clears throat> nice, nice. All right, well, uh, make sure you find us all over the internet. Uh, subscribe, rate, review, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora. Make sure uh, you find us at almostsideways.com. Find us on Facebook. Find us on Twitter. Uh, there will be a, uh, a Daily Notes coming out uh, sometime soon as well. I believe he is doing a nostalgia deep dive with his wife of Hocus Pocus, if I remember seeing that right. So that's what he's got coming out uh, this week. Let's get into uh, to what we've been watching. Uh, Zach, I'm going to you first. What have you been watching? All right, well, I have a couple movies to report on. Um, the first movie I watched, well, you know, we're, we're all living in this corona uh, reality, and we're all boxed up in our homes for the most part, particularly if you're uh, under the age of 18, you're most likely having to go to school via remote internet. And so that kind of made me reflect and ruminate on how some people in the past had to live barricaded in a one environment. And um, I watched, uh, from 1959, George Stevens' film, The Diary of Anne Frank, which was on TCM this month. Never seen it before. Read, the, you know, read the book. Everyone's read the book in middle school. Uh, but it was a very refreshing movie. I didn't remember um, quite a lot from the book, um, but it tells the story of Anne Frank, who uh, is living in um, Am- uh, in uh, Amsterdam with her family, and they uh, live atop um, this business building. They live in the attic for um, nearly two years. And the movie, it's a three-hour movie, but I gotta say, it actually moves along pretty fast, given that it's, you know, obviously an older movie. It has an intermission in it. And uh, Millie Perkins as Anne Frank, kind of a strange casting. She's a little too old. She's a little glamorous. Uh, but um, it, you know what? It works. And I think it tells a powerful story. It, it is very much kind of in a studio Hollywood tradition, but it doesn't feel overly stage-bound, even though it is based on, on the play. Uh, and um, Shelley Winters gives an Oscar-winning performance as Mrs. Van Dunn, who's also kind of sequestered in that same area. Um, again, you know, it, it, it's, it's a useful kind of reminder that um, people have had to live in very uh, horrible circumstances um, in order to survive. And so uh, what we're all going through right now is, is pretty tragic, too. But I think given uh, given the historical, uh, you know, uh, uh, thing, things that have happened in the past it's, it's worth remembering the suffering that people have gone through so I don't know, all in all cool movie worth checking out I give it a solid three and a half stars solid classic 1950s studio filmmaking and then and then just today just in the last couple hours I had to uh, I watched uh, Borat subsequent movie film which I'm a little disappointed we opted to not review as a group today so I'm just going to give my take on it I thought it was funny I thought it was better than the first one um, the first one, I, you, I mean, 2006 is, is a very different world than the world we live in today. Um, I think my nitpicks with the first one were that it, it was just, it, it was always kind of too clear what was staged, and it just felt really insincere, and it was kind of sure for shock value. Um, this one is a little bit more about, it. it, it the, the, for me, it was less about uh, the problematic issue of if it was staged or not, or if it was real or not. Um, obviously, a lot of it was real. I mean, there are appearances in the movie by Mike Pence and, and most notably Rudolph Giuliani. Um, but I think the overall message is is pretty clear. Um, I think Borat, it's, 
Sasha Baron Cohen is a, a brilliant uh, satirist, absurdist comedian for this generation, and uh, the movie definitely does what you expect it to, which is shock you and make your jaw drop and be more uncomfortable than even like the worst episodes of Curb Your Enthusiasm and The Office. So um, it's it's solid entertainment, three star movie. Um, probably won't get nominated for an Oscar this time. I'm I'm thinking pr- probably not, but you never know. Crazier things have happened. Yeah, that that lightning only strikes once. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I honestly didn't even realize it was coming out this weekend. Or, or yeah, we that could have been what we ended up uh, ended up reviewing. But uh, I'm I'm glad it's a uh, I'm glad it's good. I'm glad it's funny. Doesn't doesn't disqualify uh, Sasha Baron Cohen from any uh, Oscar prospects for Trial of Chicago Seven? You don't think? Oh, if anything, I think it enhances it. I mean, the Borat has like 84% on Rotten Tomatoes. Obviously, it was well-reviewed 14 years ago, too. But I think the uh, the powers that be in Hollywood really appreciate it, in part because, um, you know, Donald Trump is, makes a much easier target for Sasha Baron Cohen than uh, than the producers in Hollywood. Although there are a few jokes directed that way as well. But, uh, uh, no, I think it's, um, you know, it's it, it's it's what it's what people want to see and what America needs to see right now. Good Good timing in a lot of ways, too. All right. Yeah, I was thinking it could either be something that enhances it like that as just showing the quality he's putting out, or it could have been like his Norbit and like completely disqualified him from ever being nominated for an Oscar again. Yeah, I don't want to say too many things about it. I won't spoil it, but I will say he has my favorite name for Donald Trump, which I've heard anyone use, which is McDonald Trump. <laughs> Almost as funny as when he called Brad Pitt, uh, Bradolf Pitler in uh, Bruno. Almost as funny. <laughs> All right. Well, good, good. All right, I'm going to go next. What I've been watching, my anniversary watch this week, I went back 10 years uh, to a film that was nominated for Best Documentary. Uh, and it was the last of the documentaries from 2010 I had to watch, and that was Wasteland, uh, directed by Lucy Walker. And the uh, star of this is artist Vic Muniz, who is... Um, uh, has is a native of Brazil, and I think he's living. He's either living in America or or England. I'm not sure which one, but uh, he goes back. He's a known for art based on um, or using everyday objects, and so he goes back to Rio de Janeiro and goes to a place called Jardim Gramacho, which was the world's largest landfill. And found a bunch of people who would pick through the garbage for a living, finding recyclables and then selling them uh, to make a living. And uh, he found about five of them, took portraits of them, and then created artwork um, of their portraits using the garbage they found from uh, the landfill. And he would create the art, auction it off, and use the money made by it to... uh, to help enhance the lives of those that were literally living in a garbage pit. Uh, it is such a cool, uplifting movie, uh, seeing how um, these are just average, ordinary people that um, some are there out of necessity, some do it because they feel like it's their little way of helping the environment, of finding things that can be recycled instead of you know, polluting the earth. Um, but the way the way he he's able to to just lift their lives in general, and one of the main one uh, characters you see 
uh, actually started a workers' association for those that pick through pick through the garbage, and uh, and he's one that actually goes back to the to London with him to the to the art auction and watches his portrait get auctioned off. It's it's really really cool. Um, for all the the uh, documentaries I've watched, kind of getting caught up on these, so many of them can be more like serious and and depressing almost and political and it's nice to see one that's really uplifting like this i give it three and a half stars uh really really solid movie really great one um that i really enjoyed so now that i've watched them all i wanted to kind of rate the the five best documentaries from 2010 one to five um and kind of how i how i see it my uh my number five is actually going to be the winner inside job um i think it just is one that um hasn't necessarily aged well. I could see how it was very, very important for the time being in the middle of that housing crisis. But I look at it and it's it's a, a more boring version of the big short now. That That's what it kind of comes across as. Number four, Exit Through the Gift Shop, the story of Banksy. It was my first, it, it's the one I had watched before this year and it was my introduction to Banksy. And he's an amazing, an amazing character, amazing artist. Uh, he, that's number four. Number three, Restrepo, uh, which I talked about, I think, last week. Uh, number two, Wasteland. And number one, Gasland. I think that one is, um, it's an amazing documentary that really kind of is shocking in a lot of ways of the dangers of fracking. And I think it's something that actually, that still holds, um, holds a lot of weight now because, uh, fracking is still something that is, uh, very, um, much in the political consciousness of whether or not we should be doing it. So no uh, that, that's my, yeah, Fracking's that's my been order in the news all week this week. Perfect time to bring that up. I know. I know. Yeah. Go check out Gasland. I think I, I looked it up this week. Actually, I think it's free on Tubi right now. So if you want to go check that one out, it's fascinating to see what fracking does to our environment. And so, uh, so Check that out. So yeah, one Gasland, two Wasteland, three Restrepo, four Exit Through the Gift Shop, five Inside Job. That's my that's my ranking of the 2010 best documentary. You're not going to get that anywhere else. Ten years after they were nominated, so you're welcome, America. <laughs> All right, Todd, what did you watch? Uh, well, if you ever said to yourself, "We don't get enough Nicolas Cage in 12th century dynastic China," I have a movie for you. <laughs> It is the 2015 movie Outcast, directed by Nick Powell. Uh, it stars Hayden Christensen, and it's like an action epic. He plays a wandering crusader who comes across the new heirs to the throne, and he has to protect them because the firstborn is like trying to kill them because he was passed up for the throne. So he comes and he joins his comrade, the White Ghost, which is Oscar winner Nicolas Cage. And it becomes like this like bloody battle picture because uh, he has to return the young boy to the throne and protect him. Uh, it's it's almost like a parody. I mean, I have a hard time taking like Crusader movies seriously anyway, but like Christensen still feels like he's like trying to fight against the Empire, but he actually does show something in this movie. Like he kind of reminded me of Andrew Garfield in Silence. Like he, I think it might be his best performance, which I which is really weird in a movie like this. Uh, Nicholas Cage is as out of place as Jake Gyllenhaal was in Prince of Persia. He just is, like, rolling his eyes at the whole setup. I don't know how he got attached to this movie. Because there's, like, simultaneously not enough Nicolas Cage and too much Nicolas Cage at the same time, which would be any Nicolas Cage in this setting would be too much. Uh, 
there's some really violent scenes. Uh, naturally, all the Chinese dynasty speaks English because, of course, that's what they did in the 12th century. Uh, it's it's not my genre, but, I mean, it's the first Nicolas Cage movie that I really had a hard time focusing on. Like, I don't know how movies like this get made, because it actually was a... I mean, it came out, it was a bad idea, it was a bomb, and then it, like, actually was going to spawn a sequel. Maybe maybe I'll never understand how the movie business actually works. It's his worst movie. I give it a half of a star. Woo! Wow. His worst movie, yet Hayden Christensen's best performance. Yeah, a little weird. <laughs> <laughs> So wait, I think Hayden, Hayden Christensen feels like one of those actors that just got completely lowballed because of uh, having to read the terrible dialogue in the prequel Star Wars movies. That is, yeah, that's that's a good call. But I mean, hey, Natalie Portman came out of that, so. True. Did you did you say what was previously your uh, lowest ranked Cage movie? Uh, it it was Ghost Rider. The first. The one. first one, yeah. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, this was a new low. Uh, yeah, and it was actually kind of boring. It, it was super bloody, but uh, yeah, I I just wasn't into it. So where does that rank on the list for you? Like seventy seventh, or I don't have what, what's my, the running count? My my full count. I mean, what have I been doing this for? Like ten weeks? Uh, probably around sixty movies. Seventy, sixty five. <laughs> All right. I mean, would you cool. want, if, if you're a film director, would you rather say that you directed the best Nicolas Cage movie or the worst Nicolas Cage movie? I think the latter is the greater honor. Is it the most, the, the biggest honor just to say you directed a Nicolas Cage movie? Oh, I don't know how much of an honor that is anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, I imagine I if that. you directed the worst one, you probably made more money than if you directed the best one. Just because, like, those straight-to-streaming movies are, like, get sold for, like, huge prices. Yeah, and if you directed the best one, your name is Mike Figgis, so you probably are not that well-known or famous anyway. Correct. See? See? You gotta be somewhere in the middle. <laughs> Alright, well, let's get into our featured review now. I love this movie so much. I did not really like this film at all. This is the most Zack movie ever made. You gotta see it. Movie reviews! Uh, and our featured review is a Netflix mo movie. Uh, it is not Borat, but it is a Netflix movie. This one came out this week. Uh, it is a remake of sorts. It is based on uh, the original material that brought about a Hitchcock film that won Best Picture back in the 40s. Uh, we are reviewing Rebecca. The terrace is for guests only. Monsieur, the young lady will be joining me. What did you do? I'm a lady's companion. Maxim de Winter. His wife died last year in his entire need of company. I'm Monsieur de Winter. What are you doing? Oh, you'll see. Week. I'd like to never forget it. Come to Mandalay. I'm asking you to marry me, you little fool. Mrs. De Winter, may I present Mrs. Danvers? Welcome to Mandalay. Never seen a house like this. 
Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you'd been a lady's maid. This is all very new to me. Oh, I'm sure you won't disappoint him, madam, if that's your concern. We did a lot of entertaining when the late Mrs. De Winter was alive. You can talk to me about her. I have no secrets from you. All marriages have their secrets. Has Max ever talked to you about the accident? I don't know what you're talking about. How am I supposed to know anything if you don't tell me? She's still here. Can you feel her? I'm tossing and turning all night. Bad dream. She was the love of his life. I wonder what she's thinking about you. Taking her husband. Using her name. You. I said I want the truth. You didn't know her. You know what he did. He can't go on living in that big old house with a ghost. I don't believe in ghosts. Uh, based on the novel by Daphne du Maurier, uh, this version is directed by Ben Wheatley, who uh, I think we forever now need to call hitchcock the second because i mean he, he's yeah remaking hitchcock here uh this is starring uh lily james and army hammer and Kristen scott thomas um i'm gonna go first talking about this because i think i'm not 100 percent sure i think i'm the only one that hasn't seen the original rebecca and so i'm gonna be able, i think i'm gonna be able to look at this like objectively as its own movie as opposed to i know todd's gonna gonna have to compare it because that's what he does but um anyways so i'm gonna look at this first uh so this stars lily james as um as a girl who uh is kind of not not in high society and uh meets this uh this man maxim de winter played by army hammer who uh really becomes smitten with her and within like a four or five day period they're married and he um and she moves into his gorgeous mansion mandalay uh that is run by mrs danvers played by Kristen scott thomas and quickly we learn more and more about uh maxim de winter's uh life and especially his uh former wife who died and he refuses to talk about it everyone refuses to kind of even mention it other than the fact that they all loved her and they still feel her presence in the house and the new Mrs. De Winter is kind of haunted by that presence. And from there, it kind of spirals into um, some madness mixed with thrilling, mixed with crime, mixed with all sorts of interesting stuff. Um, I could see why they wanted to, uh, to kind of make a, a newer version of this because I can imagine, I haven't read the book, but I can imagine that source material is so, so rich because... This, there's so much going on in the story, and it's um, I, I really got into the story and and loved the plot um, of the twists and turns that this uh, that this story takes. Uh, I always love seeing Lily James. I think she's kind of like a new um, a, a new generation's kind of like Kira Knightley in the fact that she just has this look about her that just attracts your attention whenever she's on screen. Uh, this is one of the better 
turns for Army Hammer. Like, I feel like after he played the Winklevi, we had trouble seeing him in anything else, and it turns out what he needed to be is just a stuck-up, pompous British British man. And uh, he, he's found his calling, so as long as he plays that, I think he'll, he'll be fine the rest of his career. Um, it's always great to see Kristen Scott Thomas doing stuff, and, uh, and she is cold and chilling and calculating as Mrs. Danvers. Um... I, I really enjoyed it. I will say some some things that I didn't uh, I didn't like. I felt uh, the score was good. However, the score kept on mixing in these flashes of modern music that really just pulled you out of whatever was going on, and I, I felt that was really distracting. And if it had just stuck with a more traditional classical score, um, it would have been much more uh, much more effective. And uh, I will also say so. I, I don't want to give any spoilers, but later on in the film, something happens. The whole film kind of flips on its head, and the story flips on its head, and how quickly the Lily James character kind of goes from this innocent, you know, naive girl to, like, like crime boss wife is kind of insane and ridiculous. Um, but you go along with it at that point because you're so interested in what's going on and how it's getting there. So, uh, I'm giving it three stars. I really enjoyed it. I really had a lot of fun with it. And now I really want to go back and watch the Hitchcock movie and see what he did with this story. Okay. Um, Zach, you're next. What'd you think? Okay. Well, uh, so, um, yeah, I, I, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the original, not quite as big a fan as Todd is. Um, but I think it's it's one of my favorite Hitchcock movies too. It was the only Hitchcock movie to win Best Picture. What's kind of cool about the original is that it's a it's like half Hitchcock, but also half David O. Selznick. So like, there's definitely some Hollywood studio system type stuff. And um, one of my favorite things about the original is how it really tries to circumvent the production code with a lot of like shrouded sexual tension in the movie that you couldn't show in '40s movies. I love that. Um, but I'm gonna try to avoid mentioning any sort of comparisons to the original because I don't feel as though that's that's entirely fair to the movie um the movie does uh, a number of things different than the original um for one thing i think it's it's a lot more it tries to be a lot more sensual in a way i mean it shows kind of the physical relationship in more detail between uh, maxim de winter and uh the uh protagonist who is unnamed throughout the movie um and in this respect um the movie kind of comes off as an over over overdone like chanel ad in the opening 30 minutes i mean they're like passionately embracing on the beach um it feels almost like a mockery of rebecca then an attempt to redo it and then once they get to Mandalay, I mean, this is like the most overdone, um, you know, uh, house ever. And uh, and then it occurs to you that they're just really trying to redo um, Downton Abbey. I mean, the whole idea of the of all the the the, the landskeepers and uh, the housekeepers and um, all this big hierarchical system, um, it just doesn't work. And what worked so well, and I hate to go again, go back to the original, but the original was really about this young girl who find, who finds herself. Um, the target of uh, this this system that is so much more sophisticated than she is, and in, in this movie, it's just kind of like um, she, you know, the the, the main character is a little bit more, has a little bit more agency, but she's also like I don't know, just less less interesting. She's less wide eyed. She's more like 
I don't know, kind of grounded in some need to belong more than the original. I, I don't know. It just, it didn't work for me. Okay. Bottom line is it didn't work for me. It didn't feel like it was necessary to remake what, what is a classic movie. It didn't add anything new to the story. Instead, it focused on parts of the story that, um, I didn't find that significant or important. So for example, the, the last act of the movie, which Terry is alluding to, goes sort of a different direction. And the Hitchcock movie, handled it in a much more kind of quicker way because it knew that the real pull of the story was, again, the sort of discomfort that the main character feels, not this kind of ham-handed uh, drama that you might see in a soap opera, which really was what the, the final 30 minutes came off as. Also, in the original Rebecca, it was really funny. I mean, like it's like almost a the, the first half hour, especially sort of a comic send-up of like uh, high-minded Euro uh, European aristocrats. This movie didn't have any sense of humor. Like I said, it's just it's sort of an overdone Chanel ad. So all in all, pretty, pretty disappointing, uh, very soapish. Um, you know, again, I tried to not compare it to the original, but it's impossible. And if I if I were to have seen a reason why this movie should have been remade, then maybe I have more um, appreciation for it. But as it is, uh, I, I don't see it and I give it two stars. OK, OK. See, this is why I went first, because I, I have nothing to compare it to. So I'm sure I would be right there with you if I had that comparison with me. All right. Todd, I know Rebecca is like, what, like top 30 all time for you, something like that? Yeah, it's up there. Yeah, alright, so tell us what you thought of the of the new version. Well, I always thought a Rebecca remake was possible, I thought, but I thought if they did it, it'd be super dark and twisted and like rated R, like I thought this would be like an Aronofsky movie or something like that, but this movie is like way too romantic and like geared toward younger people for like it even to resemble the original movie in a lot of ways. Like, I feel like main, the main problem is you're never intimidated by Army Hammer. Like, he's supposed to be, like, suspicious, and you're supposed to be kind of afraid of him, but he's way too whiny and, like, generous for you to actually have the stakes raised in any scene that's supposed to have tension. I, I think it's kind of horrible casting. There's actually way too many Americans playing Brits in this movie. Like, I mean, like, Ann Dowd is in there, too. Like, she's a, she's kind of a cool supporting part, but uh, I don't know. It, it didn't really work for me. And Lily James, I thought, was good, but she doesn't really pop off the screen. I feel like... Kristen Scott Thomas is decent. I mean, she she plays it pretty well, and she's sinister enough to do it, but she's, like, way too old. I, her counterpart in the original is actually my number five supporting actress performance of all time. Uh, so she had big shoes to fill, but she still is probably the highlight of this movie. Uh, I I think this movie is, feels and looks kind of like an AMC show. Like, the, 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 the sets are, like, really big and decorated, but they kind of feel small and, like, stagey and cheap. And, and the scenery is bright to the point of almost looking fake. It, I, I agree with Terry. The, the music was, like, unmemorable, which isn't normal for Clint Mansell. Usually his, his scores, like, kind of dictate the movie, and I don't feel like this one really did. And I, I feel like the movie also had way too many montages and, like, dreamlike sequences. And it, it, it took away from, like, the gothic feel that the, the story's supposed to have. And, it, it, and, not, and the movie just kind of feels unnecessary because it's not an improvement on the on on the material it's not an update it's just sort of there it's like way too glossy and way too dressed up i i i don't think you feel like the the shadow of rebecca on manderley until like too late in the picture for it and, and so it doesn't really leave the impact that it should i i, I guess i like that they took it in a different direction in the near the end of the movie but it comes off really soapy and like it was trying to be like a the conclusion of a like a John Le Carre mystery or something. The uh, the final scene I also thought was kind of awful and like out of place. I give it two stars, uh, just like Zach. I actually did watch the uh, original one after I watched this one because 
it had been a while, and I was just like, I, I'm not, I'm not screwing this up right, and like, no, it's just that much better. See, and this is why I, again, this is why I went first, because not having anything to compare it to, I saw the, the brilliance of the, I think I saw the brilliance of the source material, and the richness of the story, and was able to, to latch onto that, where you guys saw how much better it was done the first time around. And I, I mean, can, can we just say, I think Ben Wheatley is a weird di choice as director for this. I mean, looking at his filmography, I mean, he, he did like High Rise and Free Fire and his next projects are going to be Tomb Raider 2 and Meg 2. Why, why is he the one that's picked to do like a psycho thriller British drama? I thought that was kind of weird. And I think, I, I, I love your thought, Todd. Like, Aronofsky doing this would have been super cool. Like, like put this story in almost like a Black Swan setting of, like, haunting presence. And that would have been, that would have been creepy. And it would have added a whole new flavor to the, to the, uh, to the story. And it might have improved Clint Menzel's score, too. Yeah. Quite possibly. I, and I... I didn't. I actually thought the score was fine, but what, like I said, what what I didn't like is all of the random little like throw in a modern song in the middle of a classic score. It just felt really, really odd and weird. Um, do do you guys agree though that I that Army Hammer needs to be playing stuck up pompous British men? Like I felt like he finally found his calling in this movie. I don't know. I agree with Todd. I think Army Hammer is really miscast. And maybe that is Laurence Olivier sort of having a spell o over the role a little bit. But like, yeah, I mean, the, this guy, le, le, and even without the original 1940 version, this guy is supposed to be someone who's in grief. He never comes across as necessarily in grief or mysterious. He comes off as like overly sensual and whiny. I, I think that's a good way of describing it. So again, I don't know if that was necessarily Army Hammer, but maybe it was the direction the screenwriter took. But I don't know. I felt like he was totally miscast. See, and you, and, and I, I think it's partially that comparison. I'm just looking at the fact that every time we see Army Hammer in anything, we say, oh, yeah, he was the wrong guy for that role. And I feel like this one was like, all right, he was the least wrong for this role than he's been since being the Winklevi. <laughs> well, I mean, call me by your name. Was... That's true. That's true. What I, about, don't, I don't know. What about Nicolas Cage as as Maxim de Winter, okay? I mean, like, there, now we can get into, like, ominous, you know, tortured characters, right? Like, that is, if you're going to go in a direction, I'd rather go eccentric rather than traditional, you know, studio lead actor. Like, let, let's get a little bit more esoteric. And I think Aronofsky would have followed that. You know, hey, maybe Mickey, Mickey Rourke. You know, let's bring him back. Well, okay, so the one that just popped into my head, going back to, to Todd mentioning Aronofsky and me thinking how this how this could have been more like Black Swan, Vincent Castle as Maxim de Winter, I think could have been a really cool haunted version of this. Yeah, I mean, Army Hammer's like the most... If we, if we were to have done a deep dive on Rebecca and one of us had suggested Army Hammer, I think we would have called that, other, that person out as being too mainstream. Also... 
I feel like I'm surprised Todd didn't bring this up. Like, we already had a quasi-remake of Rebecca in Phantom Thread. And Phantom Thread had all the same kind of feelings and mood as uh, Rebecca, but the story was different enough to make it a, a different movie. But, like, that's the remake we wanted, and that was a really good movie. And it, it had similarities to Rebecca, but it took it in enough different directions that it was still satisfying for fans of the movie and for people who had never seen it before. Yes, Tom Hiddleston. That would have been another really good... Maxim De Winter. And he was even in another Ben Wheatley movie. I mean, missed opportunity, man. I don't know. Anyways, I'm still giving it three stars, but maybe that'll change once I see the original. I don't know. Um, Alright, so I'm giving it three. You guys are giving it two. It's on Netflix. It's easy to find. Um, and uh, I, I, think, I think it's worth checking out. If you haven't seen the original and you can get access to the original, maybe go watch the original instead. Todd, you... Not, do you agree with me, Todd, that the original Rebecca is Hitchcock's funniest movie? Like, particularly the opening 30 minutes are, like, hilarious. I wouldn't say it's his funniest, but yeah, there, I mean, there is humor in, in places in this, that there wouldn't normally be in his movie. And this movie was utterly humorless, because it didn't find any real interest in the story. It just wanted to be, you know, this very, like, showy piece. It didn't have any interest in, in the su subtleties of the story, and... That was really missing out. I'm sorry to interrupt, Terry. I just... No, 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 it's fine. It, it made me nostalgic for the original as well. Which I also have not seen for like 15 years at least. See, I thought you were going to go for the other thing we needed to ask Todd about. And that's be that is another one of his all-time lineups just came up in this review. So, Todd, what is your full top five of your best supporting actresses of all time? And which one are we going to come to the stable moving forward? <laughs> Once again, I've seen them all, so it's not going to be as cool. But okay, uh, my number five, I have Judith Anderson and Rebecca. Number four, Anne Margaret in Carnal Knowledge. Number three, Angelina Jolie in Girl Interrupted. Number two, Mayoshi Umeki in Sayonara. And number one, Lindsay Krauss in The Verdict. Lindsay Krauss in The Verdict? Who was she in The Verdict? She, I mean, she, she has, like, one scene. She's, a uh, She's on the stand, and it's like... She's the nurse? The, she's the, the nurse, you mean? The one that is cross-examined by Paul Newman? That sounds right. It's been a while since I watched it, yeah. <laughs> well, it sounds like we need to come disable that shit. Well, yeah, I mean... Well, <laughs> well we've all seen <laughs> the verdict. Yeah. That's Maybe true. we need to deep dive it. <laughs> I didn't even I remember she was in it, and that movie's like a top 50 movie for me. <laughs> That's the only one of That's those great. I've seen. That's the only one of your top five I've seen, Todd. I think Charlotte Rampling's better in that movie, but whatever. <laughs> Maybe it's like um, it's like the, the like soon. essence That's... of what a supporting actress. Yeah, I don't know. She's in it for like one scene, but I mean, she is good in that one scene. You don't even remember the character. <laughs> no, well now I'm remembering. I just forgot. I forgot it was Lindsay Krause. Not even Lindsay Krause's right. best performance, though. Her best performance was that uh, David Mamet movie. Um, House of Games? House of Games, yeah. She's really good in that movie. See, I thought she... I didn't, never liked her in that, so when she when I saw her in this, I was kind of blown away by it. Oh, interesting. Okay, well, House of Games, she's the lead lead actress in, so... I don't know. Well, no, may, may, Zach, maybe we need to figure out our uh, our top five best supporting actresses of all time. I think so too. I've never seen Sayonara. I've always been intrigued by it, but that that list was not. There were there were no, there was no you know um, uh, unfaithfully yours type movies on that list. So 
nothing too shocking. I guess except for Lindsay Krauss. I mean, that, that was shocking, but more just the performance and not so much the movie. I was kind of hoping on that list would be, you know, the the secondary nun in Come to the Stable. And I think that would have just brought it all full circle if Come to the Stable had made the list. And then we could... Yeah. Yeah. And once again, shocking to not, not really not see Kate Hudson or Virginia Madsen on the list. I'm just going to put that out there. But Ooh, good call. Oh. Okay, if you want to say Lindsay Krause, sure. But... <laughs> but no Penny Lane? I mean, she is Penny Lane. I mean, I try not to just, like, shower my favorite movies with that many, like, high praises. Like, I remember, Zach... Yeah, but this is your list of all time. This is the place to shower. (laughs) I guess. But I remember, like, I remember Zach saying his top uh, five supporting actors in 1996 were all Fargo actors. And he actually thought that John Carroll Lynch (laughs) is better than Edward Norton is in Primal Fear. And it's like... That that is delusion. Like I don't do. I try not to do that. That's a fair point. It was more. It's more fun to to do. You know, like the nineteen seventy four best supporting actor race. You know, all Godfather Part Two. It's fun to do that. If you can, it's worth trying. Yeah, for sure. All right, let's move off of that now. Into spotlight segment now. Spotlight. And so we've been talking about how Rebecca is a is a remake. It is uh, well, kind of. They don't. They're trying not to bill it as a remake. It is a another film based on the original source material and the on the book. However, it got us thinking. Uh, let's do a Mount Rushmore of remakes. And the funniest thing, I texted Todd today that apparently two years ago, to the day. Like, it popped up on my Facebook memories that I posted about how we did a podcast two years ago today about a Mount Rushmore we did of reboots, which is very similar. It's not the same thing. I, not, I wouldn't, not at all, but I, it was close enough that it was, it was worth mentioning. So, um, but this is Mount Rushmore of Remix. Okay. Todd, I, I, I forced you to go last and and wait to, you know, gush on the original Hitchcock version of Rebecca. So I'm going to let you go first this time and give us your submission for Mount Rushmore on the greatest remakes of all time. Well, do, do we have, a, like, a one that stands out as should be our consensus? Like, I don't the, know if we do. Like The Departed? Well, we could. All right. The, the do we Departed's want to just... a good one. Yeah, I think, right, I the... think we go with The Departed. I'm good with that. Departed is our consensus. That is that is the, the Although, non-negotiable. That it, anyone we're, actually yeah. seen Infernal Affairs? Todd, have you seen it? Yeah. How how it's does still, it compare it, to The Departed? It's way different. It's a uh, it's way more of like an action movie, it, but it is a really good movie. But yeah, it's in storyline only. Is it somewhat similar? I don't well, know. Are, we're not, we're not doing cool. like improvements on the original. Are we? We're just doing like best movies that are remakes, right? Yeah. yeah, and and I always think that's cool though. Is is when you can have a remake that you're like, yeah, it w- came from that, but it looks completely different, and it, yeah, it's not funny games here, right, Todd? True. <laughs> or psycho. All right. Yeah. What what's your what's your submission, Todd? Uh, I'm gonna go with what I had ranked as the number one most quotable movie of all time, and one power ranking I did way back when, and that's Scarface. Because Scarface is 
an undeniably classic movie, and it is so rewatchable. Like, the first time you watch it, you might not be, like, totally in with it, but, like, the more times you watch it, you're just like, man, this is, this is, like, Al Pacino doing his thing. It is so many iconic shots, so many iconic uh, lines, it, and it's completely different than the original version from the 30s. It's, it's an amazing movie, and it was, it would be, uh, other than The Departed, that was the next one for me. Okay. So we have Scarface. Which is getting remade again by the Coen brothers. Or written by the Coen brothers. By the right. Coens. <laughs> is it weird that I have not seen any version of Scarface? None of them. Sort of weird. Sort of weird. It is, yeah. All right, Zach, you're next. What is your submission? So I tried to go with something that um, I had seen both versions of. And uh, I decided to go with one that um, I had named the best movie of 2010. It's still probably my number two or three that year. And that is uh, Let Me In, the remake of the Swedish film Let the Right One In, the Matt Reeves American version, which Todd has lampooned me for liking so much over the years. But I know secretly he gives a thumbs up as well. It's a really solid remake. And what I like about it is that it isn't just a shot-by-shot remake. It actually takes the story in some different directions. It has a sort of different mood to it while sort of maintaining that the same sort of cinematic look. Um, but taking the story in a few other directions and also removing some of the more cheesy parts of the original, particularly some cheesy special effects that don't work. The original's a great movie too, but um, they're great in different ways. And um, it's like a great cover version of a song. Um, I think both work really well, but the uh, the American remake Let Me In is a fantastic movie. That's a good call. I, I know you liked it more than anybody else uh, on the podcast, but uh, that that is a good movie. Okay, uh, I was hoping you'd take another one off my list so I didn't have to try and figure this out. So I, I, I think I know what I'm going with. Some of the other ones I had written down, though, just to kind of throw them out there. It's impressive when you can bring something new if you are a remake of a remake of a remake of a remake, and that's uh, Stars Born. I think it's worth mentioning. Um, another one I had written down, Ben Hur, was a was a remake of a silent film, uh, and uh, you also have True Grit, which was a somewhat recent remake that was pretty good. But the one I'm going with is um, taking an old classic western and modernizing it and making it an absolutely outstanding movie that's 310 to yuma uh the remake with uh with russell crowe and christian bale and ben foster i absolutely love that movie Uh, i never saw the original uh however um to be able to take that and i i've heard from many people like this is one of the best remakes knowing that know the source material and so um that that's that's got to be the one for me. I mean, it, it's it's like top five. I think it was two thousand seven. It's like a top five movie of that year for me. So uh, so three ten to Yuma. That's what I'm going with. Yeah, it's a good one, and it's yeah, it's definitely better than the original. It, it, the original does not does not even look good anymore. All right. The did you ones... guys have any others you you uh, were considering? Yeah, I had written down a few more. I had uh, uh, the thing, uh, the fly. King Kong, Vanilla Sky, and uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, like the 78 version. Can I just say just how much, like, the 2005 Peter Jackson King Kong is completely crapped on and forgotten when it is a really great movie. Like, I really, I really love that movie. And, and everyone just wants to write it off and forget about it. 
because I don't know Jack Black's in it and in a dramatic role. I, I don't. I honestly don't know why people just think that it's it's trash and it it is like the perfect modern remake of the 1933 version in like every way. Yeah, I thought that was going to be one that you were going to choose. Yeah, I. I 310 to Yuma is a better movie. I mean, King Kong is a really good movie. 310 to Yuma is better. All right, Zach, did you have any others you were thinking about? I only really had two others that I were I was thinking about. One was Insomnia, which um, Christopher mm. Nolan remade in 2002. I have not seen the original Insomnia, though, so I can't judge too harshly. But I, I think uh, Insomnia is my favorite Christopher Nolan film. Um, and then I would also say Imitation of Life, the 1959 version, which is an improvement on the 30s version. Um, and touches on issues of race and gender more explicitly than the, than the 30s version, um, but uh, still is, is emotionally a very affecting movie. All right. Good, good. Okay. And Rebecca so, is not on either of our lists, right? No, no. <laughs> D- didn't think so. <laughs> All right, so Matt Rushmore remakes The Departed, Scarface, Let Me In, 310 to Yuma. I would say probably some that are a little... I mean, let me in in 310 to Yuma. I don't know if they'd pop up on, on many Mount Rushmore's of this, but uh, but uh, we definitely have two, like, Departed and Scarface, I feel, are two, like, everyone, like, consensus this would be on there. And then the others are kind of up for debate, so I think we have a good list here. Good Mount Rushmore. All right. Moving on. It's time for Power Rankings. You can't top that. Yeah, that's the movie about the horse. I'm going to pull an audible at the last minute here. That's because I haven't seen it. Power rankings. Not including Fargo. Can't choose Fargo ever again. And this week on power rankings, Zach won two weeks ago. So Zach got to pick our category. And and this is, uh, we always talk about, you know, what's like right up each other's alley. And this is like the most Zach category of all time. Uh, Zach, tell us what we're doing. Uh, today we are looking at the top five bad takes by the greatest film critic who ever lived, Roger Ebert. Yeah, and I think the the important thing to say here is I, this is all completely out of love. I mean, we we all appreciate Roger Ebert and what he what he did for uh, for film critics. I I think podcasts like this and YouTubers that talk about movies and just the entire like movie critic industry wouldn't exist the way it is now if it wasn't for Siskel and Ebert and Roper and everybody else that was a part of that show. And so if it wasn't for Ebert, I mean, we wouldn't be here. And, uh, and we always give Zach a lot of crap that he, uh, that a lot of his opinions on movies are basically Roger Ebert's opinions. So I'm really curious to hear what's on his list. Um, but yeah, I, I think, Roger Ebert is a legend, and he's worth, uh, he, he's definitely worth honoring by, and I think he would be honored by us doing a list of how much we disagree with him in different areas. Yeah, I mean, disagreement was such a huge part of Roger Ebert because the reason he was known, at least for most people, was the show Siskel and Ebert, which now is, I think, known by younger generations who didn't actually watch the show for those funny YouTube clips where those two white guys are arguing about movies like Full Metal Jacket and Blue Velvet. So, uh, yeah, he might have been a better, like, like, uh, uh, orator than an actual film, um, expert. I always felt that show had such an odd ending by going with the Bens for the, like, Ben Lyons and Ben Mankiewicz. 
I always felt Ben Lyons was over his head, and Mankiewicz was, you know, a film historian trying to be a critic, and it just felt weird. Yeah. A.O. Scott and Michael uh, Phillips, at least, had some of the same dynamics, but... Yeah, but they, they weren't they weren't buzzy, I guess, so let's get, you know, the film critic for Entertainment Tonight and the host of TCM to... Uh, Talk about, mo- I, I, but it, hey, they're both their felt- names. Their name is Ben Terry. That's that's the key. <laughs> they're both named Ben. It's amazing. Uh, I I am a huge fan of Ben Minkowitz. I I think he he's one of the he's just awesome. He's awesome. Okay, anyways, let's get back to Ebert. So bad Ebert takes. That's what we're looking at. The worst Ebert takes of all time, according to us. Uh, Zach, this is your list. You're going first. Okay, well, I mean, I'm genuinely curious about both of your lists because, to be perfectly honest, this was a pretty easy list for me to come up with because I agree with Roger Ebert like 98% of the time, which some may say is unoriginal, but I just say I have good taste and I learn from the best. So uh, there have been some times where I I disagreed with him, particularly after 2006, which if you know Ebert, that's when um, he went in for surgery and he lost his ability to speak. And as a result, he became, I think, a lot more sentimental and friendly toward um, even some very questionable movies. So I'm not really going to look too much in the post 2006 era. Um, I'm going to look more at the sort of primary years. And um, for me, the number five film is a film that um, I grew up loving in in spite of Ebert's review. And if you read his review of it, it actually sounds like he likes it. And that is 1993's Mrs. Doubtfire. Now, the thing is, Ebert had a thing about Robin Williams. It took him a long time to quote unquote get Robin Williams. And his criticism was always the same, which was that Robin Williams, he didn't like how Robin Williams basically turned all of his performances into his stand-up routine. Um, He complained about that in Aladdin. He complained about that in The Fisher King. He complained about that in virtually every movie that Robin Williams made, and Mrs. Doubtfire was no different. Except the thing is, Mrs. Doubtfire is not only funny, but it has a heart as well. It has some really memorable lines. It has, um, I think, arguably Robin Williams' second greatest performance after Good Will Hunting. And um, I think it's a movie that uh, a whole generation of people grew up watching and really admire. So... It may not be a perfect movie, but I think his two-and-a-half-star review really cuts kind of short um, the movie's ability to both um, entertain people and make people laugh, but also make people reflect on the impact of divorce on families. So, uh, shame on Roger for that one. That, 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 was a good, that was a good movie. One of Robin Williams' best. That's a good call. That's a good call. All right. Uh, I'm going to go next. Uh, so th- yeah, this was kind of fun. Um, I hadn't really done a dive in too much into like, you know, Roger Roger Ebert and his you know his bad takes, and I would say the the um, my number five is one that it, it it's it it's kind of I don't know probably more disappointing, and and it's a childhood favorite of mine, and so I'm just gonna be mad at him for for saying this. So my number five is uh, the uh, the nineteen eighty four film Police Academy, which he gave a thumbs down to. He didn't even give a star review to. He just gave a thumbs down to it. Um, and this was I, I loved the Police Academy those movies. I grew up with them. Um, they're so much fun. They're so funny, and and he just hated it. And so I tried to come up with uh, with some good like quotes for some of these. And so this is something that he said in his review for for Police Academy, his thumbs-down review, he said, it's really something. 
It's so bad, maybe you should pool your money and draw straws and send one of the guys off to rend it. So that in the future, whenever you think you're sitting through a bad comedy, he could shake his head and chuckle tolerantly and explain that you don't know what bad is. <laughs> That's how much he hated Police Academy, which, and like I said, it's not like high, like high art here. However, it's better than that. And that just made me sad to read that he hated it that much. So it's number five on my list. It's better than that. <laughs> It's better than the worst comedy of all time. Well, if he hated yeah, it that much, I, I'd, I'd hate to think what, what he gave Mission to Moscow. That yeah, really would frighten. All right. Todd, number five. Uh, so I went with one that I've always noticed. Like when you see Rotten, uh, on Rotten Tomatoes, it'll have his little blurb. It's, and it's, uh, it says, to the point that I understand, I don't care. And that's what he gave in his one and a half star review of the Usual Suspects, and because and then you read his review and he says that he when he watched it at Sundance he kind of lost track of the plot and stopped paying attention and so he went in watching it again while knowing the twist and that is not how you ever want to watch Usual Suspects the first time it shapes how you watch the movie and uh, then if you know what the twist is it just creates like a no win situation if you're trying to catch it all again. And it's like, I don't think he actually recognizes that fact, though. Like, he just claims the movie isn't very smart and it manipulates the audience. But, I mean, at the same time, it's like, this is one of the most complex and satisfying screenplays, like, ever written. And of all the random classics that he, uh, you know, shit on, giving one and a half stars to this really does not age well at all. And uh, I, I, don't, I don't know how he ever came to that conclusion. That's a good, that's a yeah. good take. Good call. Yeah, that is one of his more inexplicable reviews that absolutely has not aged well. But it, but at least he yeah. admitted that he didn't understand it. I mean, you got to remember that you know most of Ebert's uh, reviews were in the pre-Wikipedia era, where if a critic didn't understand the movie, they just kind of had to give it thumbs down and blame the movie for their lack of intellectual comprehension. But I would also kind of agree that I think Usual Suspects is overrated. Okay, so my number four film on Ebert's worst take list is from 1990, and that film is Ghost winner of two Academy Awards. And um, again, Ghost is a movie I grew up with, really enjoy. Maybe it's not the world's most perfect movie, but it's a movie that made a shit ton of money, won some Oscars, um, really made Patrick Swayze and Whoopi Goldberg household names, and Roger was the only person in America who didn't get it. I don't know what the problem is, Roger. He thought that the story was sort of was predictable, and it followed what he called the idiot plot. And uh, he didn't like the scene where um, Patrick Swayze comes back to life through Whoopi Goldberg's body and kisses Demi Moore. And you know what, Roger? Screw you, okay? That was a good movie. People liked it. It was funny. It was creative. It had a different sort of premise on the ghost story. And um, it's a rewatchable movie. It's 30 years old. So um, Roger's definitely in the minority in that one. And uh, probably he regrets it. Maybe he's sitting somewhere on a subway with that crazy guy trying to make coins move, and um, all because he gave a thumbs down to this movie. That's a good call. That's a good call. Okay. All right. Number four on my list. Uh, this is a bad take by Roger Ebert because he said a movie was good, and it wasn't. Uh, and, uh, it, it's going to hit on, uh, I was reading some stuff that, um, said that this is really going to hit on a, a soft spot for Roger Ebert and that soft spot is Jennifer Lopez. Um, this is a movie I just saw this year 
as one of my anniversary watches. It's the Cell, which I gave two stars to. I thought was kind of ridiculously over the top and and insane and like trying to be artistic. And when you're trying to be artistic, you really just don't work. Uh, yeah, Ebert gave it four stars and thought it was a masterpiece and gave, and it was in his top ten of the year. I have no idea what he saw in this movie, but I don't. Other than Jennifer Lopez, uh, but uh, the, there's two things that are worth watching in this movie, and that is the fact that Jennifer Lopez is in it, and that Hank Schrader is in it. Other than that, it's not really <laughs> worth anything, and. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know how he gave it four stars. And with that said, I, I, I have a reveal here. I was going to wear this, but then it got cold, so I'm wearing my sweatshirt here. But I have to show you. I have my new uh, Breaking Bad shirt on underneath. So, Eric, can you guys see that? Very nice. Yeah. It, it's, it's Heisenberg, and then inside Heisenberg is the shot of the, of the RV in the, in the desert. It's pretty awesome. I like this shirt. So anyways, yeah, number four is the cell. Well, you know, there you could say that that Hank Schrader was in a lot of movies that should have gotten that shouldn't have gotten thumbs up. But um, that is a great call by you, Terry, because he definitely had a J Lo phase where like every movie she made from like nineteen ninety five to two thousand four, he gave thumbs up to. I mean, we're talking Made in Manhattan, we're talking oh, Angel Eyes. He gave that two and a half stars. I mean, he was almost at the three star threshold for that movie. He gave Anaconda three and a half stars. He definitely had a thing for J Lo, and I think what what eventually killed that was Monster in Law, which he was really upset that Jane Fonda went out of retirement to make. So after that, J Lo was off his list. But for a while, he was J Lo's number one fan. That which probably says more about his review for the cell than the movie itself. Man, you you know that last year Hustlers would have been like his number one or two movie of the year. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad I'm glad my pick has the approval of the Ebert expert of the group. All right, Todd, number four. Well, continuing with your thought of like a really random movie to pick on that he gave four stars to that wasn't any good, I'm going with the movie Rendition. And I remember when this was coming out, I really wanted to see it. Like, I loved Sotzi and Gavin Hood's like follow up, had this monster cast, and Ebert gave it four stars. I was like, it was one of my most anticipated movies, and the trailer was really cool. And he gave it four stars, but if you read his review, I think he thought he was watching a documentary because he kept talking about <laughs> the context of the movie and the importance of what was happening and not, like, the merits of the movie because the movie is really dull. And he gives, like, Zero Dark Thirty is a movie that has similar themes, and he gives that, like, a lukewarm three stars, but you read his review, it really was a thumbs down. And if he was being honest, he probably would have had this in his top 10 of 2007 by how much he loved it. But... He was, like, the only critic who liked it. It's got under 50% on Rotten Tomatoes, and Witherspoon is terrible, and, and she, like, overacts to the extreme, even in the trailer. And it's not a good movie, but uh, it was one of the most confusing... It was, like, st probably the start of his decline, because that was a, it was just a bad movie, and he gave it four stars. Good call. Good call. Yeah, that was in the post-2006 era when he gave pretty much every movie four stars. So there's a lot to lot lot to pick from from that era, but that that's a good one. That was one of the more obscure ones. All right, Zach, number three. Okay, my number three film is yet another early '90s film that um, maybe it's just a movie I grew up on, but I, I, as I grow older, it's astonishing to me why he doesn't like it because I, I do watch this movie every year, and for me, it gets better every year, and I'm going to watch it here 
pretty soon in the next few weeks, and that is 1990's Home Alone, which is the second best Christmas movie of all time. Now listen, okay, Ebert was from Chicago, okay? So Home Alone is one of the more iconic North End Chicago movies. Ebert liked John Hughes movies. Um, this is not a John Hughes directed movie per se, but it has John Hughes all over it. And um, it's a movie that, um, even if you sort of read his review, kind of like what Todd was alluding to a little bit, uh, he, he can't help but acknowledge that it's um, probably a good movie and has definitely some good performances and he praises Macaulay Culkin. What he doesn't like about the movie is he thinks that the premise is too frightening for children and that they will probably cry when they watch it. He has some moral objection to thinking that the movie is overly violent and intense. Yeah, violent when, when Joe Pesci tries to bite off Macaulay Culkin's finger and, and then and then the, the old guy smashes him with the uh, the shovel. That's very scary filmmaking, Raj. I'm, I'm sure children everywhere were terrified. Also similar criticism in his re review of Jumanji, which he thought was way too scary for children. So the morally righteous Roger was definitely a Roger I give thumbs down to, and Home Alone was one of his worst uh, takes. However, his thumbs down review for Home Alone 2 is actually uh, right on and, and ages pretty well. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's ridiculous. Thumbs down to Home Alone. Come on, man. Okay. Number, what are we talking, number three? Number three on my list is a movie that was nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Director. It won Best Original Screenplay. It is number 211 on the IMDb Top 250. It is my number one of 1989 and our site's number five of 1989. And yet he gave it two stars. That's Dead Poets Society. How do you not like Dead Poets Society? I mean, it is like... Robin Williams. An, um, yeah, exactly. It goes back to he had a thing against Robin Williams. And especially like what you were talking about, like what he thought of Robin Williams. This is the most anti-Robin Williams Robin Williams like ever was until like Goodwill Hunting. Yet uh, he gave it two stars. So here's, here's my quote from this one. This is from his review. Uh, he says, uh, Dead Poet Society is, uh, is not the worst of the countless recent movies about good kids and, um, and hidebound authoritarian older people. It may, however, be the most shameless in its attempt to pander to an adolescent audience. The movie pays lip service to qualities and values that, on the evidence of the screenplay itself, it is cheerfully willing to abandon. If you're going to evoke Henry David Thoreau as the patron saint of your movie, then you had better make a movie he would have admired. I mean, come on, man. Come <laughs> if it on. would have starred J-Lo in that role, he would have liked it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If it was, if it was J-Lo standing on the desk saying, oh, captain, my captain, then, then man, that would have been the number one movie in 1989. But instead, you had Robin Williams, and uh, yeah, it, it's... That's, that's a horrible take. It's an amazing movie, and yeah, not not a two-star movie. Well, that begs the question, do you guys know, we'll play Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon for a second. Do you know the only movie, at least that occurs to me, that had both J-Lo and Robin Williams in it? Because there was, oh. yeah, Jack, which Ebert, oh yeah, which Ebert hated. Now, in his defense, Jack is a pretty terrible movie, but it was one of the few J Lo movies he gave down to thumbs down to. So his his hatred of uh, Robin Williams beat out his admiration for J Lo. Sadly, did you guys ever see? I don't remember who was hosting, but Saturday Night Live a few years ago did a uh, did a sketch about Dead Poet Society. And the whole the whole closing scene of the oh captain my captain thing, and uh, and bas basically all 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 you need to know is that um, 
they they replay the scene, at, but they add a ceiling fan to the room. <laughs> I can <laughs> that, see where it's going. Yeah, you can see where it's going. That that's uh, there. There's yeah yeah. Everyone ends up just red everywhere. <laughs> I think he and the host. Like I forget. Who, yeah, I forget who the host was, but it was really, really funny. Okay. Uh, Todd, number three. Okay, my three has been mentioned already. It's uh, Rogers' zero star review of Police Academy, because <laughs> on his website, when it has a thumbs down, that means zero stars. I realize. Oh, that. is that what it means? That. Yeah, that's what it means. Okay. <laughs> uh, but in a way, Ebert and I agree a lot on like slapstick humor, like, but. I mean, because, like, when he gives, like, thumbs down to Tommy Boy or whatever, like, I do the same thing. It's, like, technically not a good movie, but even though, even if it's funny. But here, it's, like, completely off. Like, Zero Stars is brutal. It's a movie that spawns six sequels. You know, I mean, <laughs> he, he doesn't, he, and he, like, when you read his review, he says, the movie doesn't and have. And a children's animated television show. I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he said, uh. The movie doesn't have any movies to s- satirize, which is a weird criticism to have, because I don't know what he's actually implying there. And then he pretty much says it's not funny because it's not Airplane. And <laughs> it's probably the shortest review I ever wrote, because it's only three paragraphs long, and it kind of seems like one of those times where he like fell asleep during the movie, he's just like, ah, screw it, it probably sucked. And then he didn't really have anything to write, so he didn't really write much. Uh, it's just a really bad review, and I think that, then that's probably why he didn't review it on his show. I mean, at least I could ne- I could never find. I looked for a while. I couldn't. Ne- I couldn't find the the clip. But yeah, zero stars for Police Academy is just inexcusable. I may have been wrong. I don't think it actually did have a TV show. I thought it did. So an animated show. I, I might have... be confusing it with uh, Ghostbusters. <laughs> Same Fast idea. Furious or something. I don't know. So I would also submit that I do feel like the Ebert website. Kudos, hats off to them for collecting and archiving all of his reviews. But they format some of his reviews wrong. I mean, I I've read reviews before where I know there are like whole paragraphs omitted from the online version of the review, and it's sad that I know that, but it's true. So my guess would be that don't don't take the website on its word. I'm guessing that he probably had three or four more scathing paragraphs about it somewhere. You just got to look in the 1986 video companion, maybe, which I probably have somewhere. Uh, yeah, you probably would. Okay. What do we got next? Number two? Zach, number two. Number two is what Todd probably thinks will be my number one, and that was 2005's Crash, which um, I've mentioned a lot on this show recently, and on the almost or on the Adam Daly podcast. Shout out to Adam Daly. Like and subscribe. Um, but I will just say, in, in, not in Roger's defense, but, you know, he's really the reason that Crash won Best Picture. I mean, that was at a time when, you know, Siskel had died. There was really, I don't think there was any critic with more pull than Ebert. He still had his show with Richard Roper, but he was such a... So much more intellectually superior to Richard Roper or really anyone else out there, at least among the kind of mass media um, critics. And um, I think he's the reason why Crash won Best Picture, which which is really unfortunate. Um, his his reading of the movie um, ages pretty badly. He claims that after seeing Crash, you become a better human being. And he says that Crash is about racial progress, and obviously it is not. And um, yeah, it's just all in all a, a, a horrible review. And um, it certainly influenced me when I saw it because I liked it when I saw it. And now it's a movie that uh, does not work in, at all 
in 2020, and I blame Roger. That is one, probably the worst aspect of his legacy was uh, his his championing of Crash, a, a, a trashy movie made for like $3 million that came out in February, released by a Canadian company that somehow beat out Brokeback Mountain. Dude, up until six months ago, you were right on line with that too. So you, I, maybe this is like, this is the the uh, the take that has aged the worst for you. Yeah. Not necessarily a bad take at the time, but just looking back on it's like, man, maybe if he was alive, that would be a different take now. Well, it's a pretty bad take, too. I mean, he even claims in his review that the movie sounds like episodic TV. So I think even at a certain level, he realized how, uh, you know, contrived the movie really was. Well, I mean... Ebert also is like a huge champion of leaving Las Vegas and uh, Raging Bull, and you know we know how you feel about those movies now. So I don't know. That's true. I think true. you've changed more than like his reviews have really changed. It's possible, but those two movies are significantly better than Crash. I, I think we're seeing we're seeing Todd we're seeing a uh, a, a uh, what happens when Zach does not have the influence of Ebert in his life. Exactly. I, th- I think yeah. that's what happens. Well, and you know, Ebert, Ebert sometimes went back and said that, um, you know, one of the more famous examples is um, The Graduate. He gave The Graduate four stars. I believe he called it his number one of 1967. And then 30 years later, if you read his review, he says that he didn't know what he was talking about. Like, he, he didn't find the movie nearly as effective, and he thought it was a fairly misogynistic movie that had dated poorly. So I feel like it's it's okay. For, it, Roger didn't admit it as many times maybe as, as he should have, but um, there were definitely times when, upon reexamination, his views uh, and takes were different. Another one that I was reading that he did go on the other way, one of the few times he went the other way was uh, uh, Unforgiven. Oh, yeah. He went from like two stars to four stars upon rewatch. I believe Siskel did too, actually. I think both of them actually changed their views. Yeah. I'm I'm kind of in the same boat as them too. The first time through, I was like, yeah, it was fine. And then the second time, I was like, okay, I see the masterpiece now. Okay. Number two on my list is one that Todd already mentioned. It's the usual suspects. I mean, I, I don't know how how he hated on this movie. One and a half stars. So Todd Todd gave the the uh, the famous quote from the from the the review, which is to the degree I do understand, I don't care. Uh, he followed that up with it was, however, somewhat reassuring at the end of the movie to discover that I had, after all, understood everything I was intended to understand. It was just that there was less to understand than the movie first suggests. Um, yeah, it, it's a horrible take. Yeah, that, that's the whole point of, you know, of a mystery is you don't know what's going on. Come on, man. Uh, it, it's one of the more brilliant films of the 90s, and he just never got it. And uh, I don't know how. Yeah, so, it's like, I don't understand, so I'm going to say that they weren't very smart. Nah, that'll work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good job, Roger. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's, my, that's my number two. All right, Todd, what do you got? Uh, my number two was alluded to earlier, and that is uh, his one-star review of Blue Velvet, which is an undeniably great movie, and his criticism is that he doesn't think Isabella Rossellini signed off on her nude scenes, and that he thinks that she was humiliated on screen, and he has no basis for that claim. She got rave reviews for her role, and, you know, she, she, he just felt bad for the a- actress, and 
But it's, I mean, she was acting. She wasn't actually getting slapped around. She was supposed to look humiliated. I mean, that's what a David Lynch movie does. It's going to make you uncomfortable. And he even praises in his review a lot of things about the movie in terms of tone and direction. But he felt bad for Rosalini, so he gave it one star. It, <laughs> it's just, I mean, it, it, it is mind-boggling what he must have been thinking when he wrote that. Well, I also he so you know along with Robin Williams, he he really hated David Lynch and and gave every David Lynch movie thumbs down until Mulholland Drive, and yeah, I mean the the of course there's the clip on YouTube with him and Siskel arguing about that exact point, and Todd's absolutely right about that point. I feel as though Ebert just was trying to criticize the movie and didn't necessarily want to point fingers at David Lynch, but wanted to point fingers at what was apparent, you know, mis- what he thought was ostensible mistreatment instead of actually, you know, trying to cr- critique the movie on its story level. But it, it didn't age well. Yeah. However, I sort of agree. Blue- I don't think Blue Velvet is as great as a lot of people think it is, but Ebert's review is, is way off. I've never seen Blue Velvet. It, I'm not sure what you would think about it, but I, that'd be an interesting one, <laughs> one for Terry to visit. <laughs> All right, Zach, number one. All right, well, you know, I grew up reading and watching Roger Ebert, and for me, you know, the most important decade of movie watching in my lifetime was the 2000s. So my worst take for Roger Ebert is not a single movie, but it is his, I guess it is in a way, but it is his list of the top movies of the 2000s. And his number one movie of the 2000s is, to me, an unforgivable choice. Um, It's not... It's not a bad movie necessarily, but it's it's certainly it's nowhere close to being a top ten movie of the decade, and that is Schenectady, New York. Um, I feel like yeah, his number two movie of the decade was the, the, the Hurt Locker, which makes me think that it, you know he didn't maybe put a lot of time into his list, and so recency bias was maybe overtaking his mind. I don't even think I don't know if Hurt Locker was even number one of two thousand nine on his list. Um, I don't even but, think yeah, it's on his year's top ten, did he? <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know. Well, again, this is this is the post this is the post surgery years. So I, you know, I, I I love I love the guy, but maybe his brain wasn't quite totally there. I don't know. But um, naming Schenectady, New York, I just want to read a passage from his review of the movie, which again is just as as uh, sort of um, indescribable as the movie itself. He says, um, "We we find something we want to do if we are lucky, or we or we find something we need to do uh, if we're like most people. We use it as a way to obtain food, shelter, clothing, mates, comfort." A first folio of Shakespeare, model airplanes, American uh, girl dolls, a handful of rice, sex, solitude, a trip to Venice, Nikes, drinking water, plastic surgery, childcare, dogs, medicine, education, cars, spiritual solace. Like, what is Ebert smoking, okay? Like, his review of Schenectady, New York is totally nonsensical, just like the movie is. And um, to name it number one of the 2000s is just, it's inexplicable. That movie must have connected with him on some visceral level that maybe no other viewer outside of Charlie Kaufman could comprehend. And um, it's an inexplicable choice for, I think, maybe one of the greatest decades of of cinema ever. So, a, a sad footnote. Yeah. All right. That that's a that's a good call. Yeah, that having that number one of the decade sounds like some like random internet hot take from some I don't know, some like garbage website that is on Rotten Tomatoes or something like that, so their lists get out there pretty easily. Like it's just like what what? 
Well, so after he gave up on J-Lo, his big theme became Ellen Page and Juno. And I thought for sure Juno was going to be his number one of the decade. It was number four, but if you read his post-2007 reviews, I mean, he alludes to Juno in like 10 different movie reviews. I mean, he, he was all about that movie. So I was surprised that wasn't number one. And I don't even think I knew he likes Connecticut, New York before I read his top <laughs> list of the decade. I don't know. I don't, I don't think I'd read his review of it. So it was a shock. All right. All right. Number one for me. Uh, this is a film that um, <clears throat> kind of famously I don't like, and I know Todd and Zach love. However, I think even they would agree that Ebert went a little far. Uh, in 2012, Ebert put out his final list of his top 10 films of all time. Of all time. And included in that list is the Tree of Life. Now, okay. Now, uh, we we had we had this discussion like when we left the theater after watching this movie, and I know you guys loved it. You four stars, one of your top films of the year. I thought it kind of sucked. I ended up giving it three stars simply because of the technical achievement that it was. But it has no plot. It has no rhyme or reason for. You know, there's dinosaurs, what, why, I don't know. Sean Penn and an ocean, it's weird. Top ten of all time? I mean, you got you got to give me that. This is, this is an insane take. It is a top ten film of all time? What? I'm looking at his list here. Like, he doesn't even have, like, Casablanca in his top ten of all time. But the Tree of Life is there. Top ten film of all time. It is the only movie in his top 10 of all time that's from the 2000s. There's not even a 90s movie on there. The most recent movie other than The Tree of Life is Raging Bull. And he has The Tree of Life in his top 10 of all time. Then this is the last list he put out while he was alive. He says The Tree of Life is the greatest film of the last 40 years of cinema. <laughs> well, he wasn't alive for the most recent seven, so... Okay, he would fine. Have, Hustlers would have been the pick The last of... 33 <laughs> years of cinema. This is the number one movie of the last 30... Of, of, like, 1980 to 2013? Really? 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 An art film by Terrence Malick that has no plot? Come on now. Hey, there's a plot. There's dinosaurs that eat each other. It's stuff that happens. <laughs> Worst take. Worst take Ebert ever had is that Tree of Life is a top ten film of all time. You got you got to give me that. It's pretty it's pretty inexplicable to say it's it's the best film since Raging Bull. Yeah, I've never seen anyone else say that it's a top ten movie <laughs> of all time. Yeah, I mean, if you read Ebert's review of it, he talks a lot about how like it reminded him of growing up in Urbana and downstate Illinois. So uh, there's definitely some like personal stake in that movie which that, goes into that, what you've that, been saying about yeah. how he got overly sentimental right. in the last few years he was writing yeah top 10 of all time at least come on man at least he didn't put the cell there that was only <laughs> top 10 of 2000 yeah exactly all right todd number one okay so I remember I watched this movie because it was Ebert's number one of one of the years. And 
I I thought the movie looked kind of like Blade Runner, so I was like all in for it. It's Dark City, his number one of 1998, which is one of the worst movies that's ever been made. And at the time, like Ebert wasn't that far off with his top movies of the year. He had, you know, he had Living Las Vegas, Hoop Dreams, Fargo. Like he he was he was pretty money at the time. In 1998, it was Dark City, and the movie has no polls. It's boring. It's ugly. It's annoying. He compared it to 2001 and Metropolis, and like the characters. I remember, one, like, I watched it once, but the characters, like, always are explaining the plot out loud to each other, and maybe that explains his problem with the usual suspects, because he needs that, like, to actually have it spoken to him or something. He even did the commentary track on the DVD. I, it's, I mean, the movie is horrible. It has no redeeming qualities. I gave it zero stars, and he claims it's one of, like, the great movies he's ever seen. It's, a, Dark City is trash incarnate. And is number one in 1998. Yeah. Nice take, Todd. I like that. <laughs> I don't entirely disagree with you, Todd. That's definitely one of the weaker number ones he had ever. And he hardly ever brought it up again. Like, it didn't It didn't seem like it made a lasting impact on him. Yeah, I mean, I, I probably would, would never watched it if it wasn't his number one, which is why it stood out to me to put it on this list. Because, I mean, he, he had a big impact on, on the movies I watched uh, around that time, too, like when I was actually really into his show. Do you know what what uh, Siskel's last number one of all, of the year was before he died? And it was the same year in 1998. Oh, it was Babe Pig in the Babe City. Babe Pig in the City, yep. <laughs> Which was on Roger's list, too. <laughs> that that's, that's strange. That's just strange. George Miller. <sighs> all right, Zach, you got any honorable mentions? I do. I already mentioned Jumanji, but we already know what he thinks about uh, Robin Williams. He didn't like Reservoir Dogs. He, he said he said it looked cheap. Um, that's not really fair. Uh, he didn't like Aaron Brockovich. Um, he gave Signs four stars and gave The Sixth Sense three stars. Come on, that's insane. Um, as we just mentioned, Babe 2, Pig in the City, four stars. The original Babe, three stars. He gave thumbs down to Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, but thumbs up to Dr. Doolittle 2 and The Stepford Wives. But in his defense, he probably likes showgirls more than anyone else, with the exception of Jacques Rebet. <laughs> All right, uh, my honorable mentions. I, I wanted to fit this in here, but I, I also wanted to talk about all the ones I had there. Fight Club, he gave two stars to. Um, Zach mentioned the uh, thumbs down review for Home Alone, yet he gave Home Alone three three stars. Oh yeah, that's a yeah yeah that's that's good. <laughs> Raising Arizona, one and a half stars. Talk about Nicolas Cage movies. That's bizarre. And then, apparently he had something against 90s comedies because both The Waterboy and Tommy Boy got one star. I mean, they're not, like, again, they're not high art, but one star. Oh, he hated on, Adam Sandler and Chris Farley. He didn't give yeah. Adam Sandler a thumbs up review until Punch Drunk Love. You know, you know Uncut Gems would have been his number one of last year. Well, or, oh, no, it would have been number two behind Hustlers. Hustlers, number one. Uncut Gems, number two. All right, Todd, what do you got? Uh, well, he gave We Need to Talk About Kevin four stars, and that's just a horrible movie all around. Uh, a Clockwork Orange and Fight Club, he both gave two stars to, which are, like, cult classic amazing movies that just doesn't age well and the one thing i really disliked about him the most is like the whole brown bunny like review and re-review fiasco because he gave it zero stars at Cannes, and then it got re-released but they like cut the unsimulated blowjob scene 
and so he gave it three stars. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't understand. Is that another <laughs> Blue Velvet kind of thing where he thought that she didn't sign off on like on that to uh, give a blowjob to her boyfriend on screen? I don't know. <laughs> it's just bad. Everything about that is just wrong. <laughs> That uh, is so awesome. I actually remember the episode of Ebert and Roper, and they, they they cut to commercial saying, coming up from the Cannes Film Festival, The Brown Bunny, and I was so ready for Ebert to just tear into the movie, because there have been a lot of articles about how Ebert insulted Vincent Gallo, and Vincent Gallo said, you're going to be fat forever, and Ebert said, I may be fat, but at least I didn't direct The Brown Bunny, and then when they showed the segment, he was like, eh, they, they cut the scenes, it's actually a pretty good movie. So disappointing. <laughs> yeah, it, it may... <laughs> Yeah, that had to. He had to have started losing it at that point. <laughs> Todd, what was the first thing you mentioned in your honorable mentions? We need to talk about Kevin. Oh yeah, so we need to talk, talk about Kevin. Actually, made its TCM debut recently. Oh wow! Yeah, they're <laughs> doing. Like, they're, they've been doing like a like a feature on like female directors. I think. I think that was what it was. But was, yeah, it was on. It was on TCM. I was also going to say, interestingly enough, Chaz Ebert's favorite movie was A Clockwork Orange. <laughs> That's interesting. Which Ebert didn't like. Roger didn't like. That's funny. All right, it is now time for us to try and get this. This is insane. <laughs> try and guess Adam's list of the worst Ebert takes. Uh, Adam, the host of Daily Notes on our podcast, uh, I, I like how, I, I, I'm wondering if Zach understands how podcasts work. I mean, he said subscribe to Adam's podcast when his <laughs> podcast is a part of our podcast. So if you are subscribing to this, you get his podcast. But anyways. Um, hey, Ebert thought he was watching a documentary when he was watching Rendition. So these <laughs> things are very confusing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, all right. Zach. What is your top five for Adam? Okay, my number five for Adam is Full Metal Jacket. Not because he's seen the movie, but because he's seen the Ebert and uh, Siskel argument about it. Number four, The Usual Suspects. Number three, Fight Club. Number two, Reservoir Dogs. And number one, which I don't think we've mentioned yet, Die Hard. Which he gave thumbs down to inexplicably. Oh, okay. All right, here's my number five, uh, Fight Club. Number four, Hocus Pocus. I'm thinking it's in his head. He's about to talk about mm -hmm. it. Nostalgia yeah, film. Mm -hmm. That seems like an honorable uh, mention, though. Yeah. Number three, The Phantom Menace, uh, which Ebert liked. Uh, number two, Daredevil, which I saw Adam gave zero stars to. And number one, Usual Suspects. Wait, Ebert gave it thumbs up? Yes. Yeah. Aye, aye, aye. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, for an... I, I feel like he probably did a little research. So I have number five, uh, Garfield, A Tale of Two Kitties, which he gave three stars to. I don't know if Adam's seen it, but that seems like something he'd put on his list. Number four, I have Babe, Pig in the City being better than the original. Number three, I have Fight Club, which he gave two stars to. Number two, I have Phantom Menace, which he gave three and a half stars to. And number one, I have The Professional, which he gave thumbs down to. He gave thumbs down to The Professional? So it's Siskel. Good grief. Okay, uh, here is Adam's list. He said, so I took this as the worst Ebert takes or the times I disagreed with his rating the most. There's probably a lot more, but think that these are solid. Um, so, honorable mentions. Cars 2, which Ebert gave three and a half stars to and Adam said was two stars. Phantom Menace, three and a half stars. Adam gave two. Come on, man. 
Goodwill Hunting where it was only three stars and Adam gave it four. Basketball Diaries, Eber gave two stars, Adam gave three and a half. That's a good one. Dead Poet Society, Adam gave four stars, two star movie. Uh, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, uh, Eber gave four stars too, Adam <laughs> only gave two. Uh, Kick Ass, Eber gave one star too, Adam gave three. The Impossible, The Impossible, Eber gave four stars too, Adam gave two. Flight. Ebert gave four stars too. Adam gave two. Taken two. Uh, Ebert gave three stars too. Adam gave one. And Home Alone three three stars and also rated higher than the previous two films. Home Alone three is the fourth best Home Alone movie out of the five. Okay, there's his honorable mentions. Number five, The Ghost in the Darkness. Uh, he gave Ebert gave half star two. Adam gave three and a half. Number four, The Raid Redemption. Ebert gave one star two. Adam gave three and a half. Number three, The Usual Suspects. One and a half. Adam gave it four. Number two, Die Hard. Uh, Ebert gave two stars. Adam gave four. Number one, Fight Club. Adam uh, Ebert gave two stars. Adam gave four. I got two. I got, I got three. three. You got, you Ooh. No mention of Hocus Pocus or Daredevil. I'm disappointed. I mean, he's got Hocus Pocus on the mind. He's about to record a Hocus Pocus uh, review. Come on, man. Or the or it's... the the Keaton Batman movies, which Ebert gave thumbs down to as well. I was regretting not putting that on the list. All right. How many did you get, Todd? I got one. I just got. You got one. Up. I got I got Usual Suspects and Fight Club and Zach. What were the three you got? Usual Suspects, Fight Club, and Die Hard. Yeah, you win. That that's pretty easy. So Zach moves right. up to sixteen and a half points. Terry's got fifteen, and I have twenty three. Which means we have to deal with another one of Zach's lists next time. But not for like a, oh, a yeah. month. <laughs> yeah, we get a we get a month to try and figure it out. All right, all right, okay. Let's move on. It's time for trivia. Are you ready? Well, let's hope so. Oh, I forgot about this. John Boyd is a slap in the face. This is going downhill quick. Trivia. And I won trivia last time, somehow. I'm, I'm shocked every time it actually happens because it's crazy. And I still hold to the fact that it is weird when I win because I don't have another movie to watch for this podcast. I mean, usually I have to watch that other one, but I don't. Instead, you two had stuff to watch. So, let's go to Zach first. No, you started last time. Let's go to Todd first. Todd, what did you have to watch and what did you think? Uh, I had to watch the Oscar-nominated movie from 2000, U571, which Terry reviewed a while back. And it's about a group of American naval officers who board a German sub to try to capture the Enigma code from the sub. The plot really doesn't matter, though, because in all sub movies, it's all kind of the same. There's a lot of yelling, there's a lot of freaking out about torpedoes, and just sitting around and doing nothing because there isn't much else you can do in that setting. It's amazing that that's actually a war movie staple because it's really boring and the ceiling is really low. Uh, clearly, sub movies are not my thing. Uh, it would have been cool to see this movie on the big screen, though, because it's, it's a whole bunch of cool action scenes and stuff, and uh, it, the claustrophobic nature would be heightened if you're in a theater. The cast is kind of cool. Uh, Carvey Cartel is never in movies like this, so he was uh, that was fun to see, And but the characterization is kind of minimal. E each character is kind of just like an empty shell, and they just like yell a lot. Uh, but one thing I will say is like David Iyer, 
was one of the screenwriters, and you could totally feel that because like, he used a lot of the same scenarios and stuff as he did in, in, in his Tanker movie, Fury. And there was one thing I liked about this movie, is there was a scene where they're all sitting on the, on the sub, and it kept rocking around, but they were sitting around a ki the kitchen table trying to eat soup, and everything kept sliding around and spilling, and they just looked at each other like, what the hell are we even doing? Like, <laughs> like this is not a good idea. Uh, the movie has a pretty exciting finish, though. It, I don't know. I'm giving, like, a modest two and a half stars, because I was never bored, but it's just, I mean, I'm not, I'm not really into the sub-movies. Yeah, I I, uh, I gave you this film simply because it is next to impossible for me to find something that you are you have not seen that is halfway decent. I gave this one two stars. You gave it two and a half. Is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah. So like I mean, we're, we're basically the same spot. <laughs> yeah, it, it was either it was either picking something like that that's like a a mediocre movie that I've seen recently, or just giving you like a crap movie. So. Because you've seen everything that I've seen, pretty much. So, anyways, I'm, I'm glad. I mean, it's kind of fun. I mean, to see to see kind of early McConaughey showing off a little bit, and then you got uh, yeah, Go and Paxton. and Kaitel and yeah. and what? Is it Paxton? Paxton, Smalls is in it. Yeah. I mean, you you've got a decent cast there. Okay. All right, I, I'm much more interested to hear the next one. So, Zach, what did you watch? I watched 1917, which was uh, going to be the Best Picture winner at the 2019 Oscars um, for Parasite won, and the Academy regained their consciousness. So, uh, yeah, I had I had not seen 1917 because I'd figured, hey, this movie's going to be around for a really long time. You know what? It's like February. There's not a whole lot else out. There's probably not going to be a lot else for until May. So maybe in March or April, I'll go see it. And uh, then COVID happened. And um, suddenly I couldn't go see it. And as a result, you know, I've been told by many people, including my, my father, that this was a movie that if I was going to watch it, it had to be in a movie theater. Um, so I don't know, maybe I was holding out hope that movie theaters would reopen. And they have, but of course, the time for 1970 has passed. And so I, I did watch it on my TV at home. And I certainly think that that impacted the experience of watching it negatively because um, I did fall asleep multiple times during the, the movie, which is, um, I, I guess, a little hard to believe. I think the most surprising thing about it for me was that it was sort of a boring movie. Like, I was expecting, you know, Saving Private Ryan, Black Hawk Down, constant action, sequence after sequence. And this movie had more in common with uh, Jerry, or like Elephant, than um, either of those movies. Because it is just like following these two guys walk around this field. And you know what? It's like cool to see them walk around. I was hoping Matt Damon would show up on a big rock, maybe, um, with Casey Affleck. But, um, yeah, those parts of the movie were pretty boring. Even when there's a plane crash, it's like, oh, it's exciting for about 10 seconds, and that's the same promo that you saw in all the commercials for it, and then, like, nothing really happens after that. Um, of course, you know, the movie is a spectacle. I mean, it is amazing to see uh, how Sam Mendes and uh, Roger Deakins were able to construct it. I recommend everyone watch the 12-minute YouTube behind-the-scenes clip. It will actually give you a lot more appreciation for the 
movie. They did some crazy shit. Like, they actually had, because so few people could be on set when they were moving the camera and following the actors, that sometimes they had the camera operators double as extras, so they were, like, wearing the uniforms at the same time. They also had to make sure that, um, this was really funny, too, they could not film during sunny days, because if it was too sunny out, their shadows would be visible um, in frame. So, like, little stuff like that actually gives you a whole lot more appreciation for the story, uh, or for the movie. But I gotta say, you know, for a Best Picture nominee, for, for a movie that had so much Oscar attention, so much praise, this is about as threadbare a story as you could possibly have. I mean, there's almost no backstory. There, it's very hard to understand um, what these characters are going through at all. Uh, it is like the most minimal attempt at all to establish... Um, fascinating characters and I also have to say that Todd's take that this was a video game was in my mind the entire time I was watching this movie. I mean, it even it even had cutscenes, like the scenes with Colin Firth and Benedict Cumberbatch. Those were like cutscenes cut out of, you know, Grand Theft Auto or something. So, on a whole, this was a disappointing movie. I, I went into it not thinking that I would I'd like, like it that much. I wasn't expecting to be bored by it, though. It just, I mean, am I crazy? I, it was, like, boring. The last the last ten minutes were admittedly pretty exciting when the guy runs into, you know, the, the other soldiers on the field, which apparently was, a, was an accident, in the, according to the YouTube documentary but um on a whole just a uh, sort of disappointing movie per, per, the, yeah, i think the academy made, made the right choice i think you're crazy I, I think the academy made the right choice but i think you're crazy it's my number three of last year i i i was never bored by it it is non-stop tension like like i feel like this and uncut gems are very similar in the fact that you are just on the edge of your seat just not knowing what's going to happen the entire time you you hear that you feel that clock ticking in the back of your head the whole time of just you, you're you're just anticipating what else could happen throughout the I, whole thing and and the the technical achievement of it all is just outstanding on top of all that I mean, I also was reminded a lot of Fury, which I think was a better movie. Um, and, of course... Oh, I uh, hated um, Fury. Of course, pa Paths of Glory. I mean, it has... Like, the movie is, I think, a derivative in a lot of ways. And not just the whole idea of the one-shot premise, but, like, there are movies that have handled this material in a much better, more thoughtful, and, and morally complex way. Um, and, uh, like I said, uh, well, kind of like what you were saying, Terry, I didn't feel that suspense at all. In fact, I kind of felt like the Schofield character was kind of taking his time. Like, he's kind of wandering around, taking a nap here or there, talking to the baby, and the, the like, come on, dude, you gotta reach the, you gotta reach that, uh, unit and tell them to back off. Like, it, we don't have time to just wander around. We don't have time to wander in the German bunker and see what they're, like, that scene has been done a million times in movies. So, the, the, the idea of the original being one-shot premise fine whatever but the, the story itself is not very original at all what story there is in the movie so i give it a, I a, a reluctant two and a half stars i disagree gary i disagree to quote uncut gems oh that's sad I, I i honestly think if it, if you had seen it in theaters it would have been different for you it's possible. But I could I could see I could see a movie like this seeing it in the theaters adding like half to a whole star. Now if Jennifer Lopez had been in it, that <laughs> changes everything. Uh I will say I am glad that Parasite won though. Like like I going going through like I could see like nineteen seventeen is gonna get lost in the in the history of cinema, but Parasite's going to live on, and that's pretty awesome.
So, okay. All right. Well, that just kind of makes me sad. Isn't but that it's surprising, time. though? No, I guess it's not. I, I, I kind of figured. I was hoping you would think it was the masterpiece it was, but oh well. Okay, so here's what we got. It's trivia time. I've got two categories here, and then I've got I've got one like awesome tiebreaker. So I hope you guys tie. <laughs> um, so uh, my categories go back to where we started, and we were starting talking about Rebecca. And Rebecca, we we mentioned very much. It's a remake. So our first list is give me the top 25 box office remakes. So the top 25 remakes that made the most money at the box office. Now, um, this is uh, this is remakes. This is also like Rebecca. It's not necessarily a remake. It's a um, it's another movie made on the same source material. Those count as well. Um, what I ended up doing is it also the list I found also counted like sequels of the remake, but I'm just counting that as one. So those don't count. Like if they if they made a remake and then they made a, a sequel to that remake that made a lot of money, it was on the list, but I didn't count that. So if you end up saying one of the movies, it'll count for all of them, and, but you don't get like any extra points or anything like that. Top 25... Box office returns for remakes. All right, we're gonna go Todd first. Uh, King Kong. King Kong was number seven. Uh, Beauty and the Beast. Beauty and the Beast was number two. The Lion King. Lion King's number one. Alice in Wonderland. Alice in Wonderland is not on the list. What? what didn't it we just talk about the top how 25. Like that was the number one movie of 2010? Yeah, like, made, like box a, office a gross? Worldwide. I hold wonder on, if, if, if that's not okay, considered okay. A, a remake. Uh, let, me, let, me, let me look this up then. I don't know. I don't know. I don't that know. movie made is like it, a shit ton of money. Domestic box office. And this is worldwide box office. I mean, I, I, mean, I know it made like a, at least a billion worldwide. Calling out this list, fraudulent. Like Ebert's like review of Dark City. Movie list. Yeah, oh yeah, the Dark City. <laughs> let me let me see if I can look up Alice in Wonderland's box office and see if it was more than the, if it should have been on this list. Because it, yeah, if it. If it's up there, which I think you're right. Well, what's oh, number 25 have in box office? Number 25 has 233 million worldwide. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, Alice in Wonderland is certainly on that. Alice in Wonderland. One, one, try over a billion dollars worldwide. Worldwide. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then okay. Dom domestic fine, fine, fine. was domestic was three hundred and thirty-four million. All right. Yeah, I'll give it to you. Okay. I don't know why it's not on my list. 
Uh, I'm going to say Aladdin. Aladdin is... Okay, so this is interesting. Aladdin is... Yeah, no. Yeah, Aladdin's number three. Never mind. Yeah. Uh, All right, Zach. Les Miserables? Are we, is that the same problem? Is that not considered a remake? Les Miserables, I, I don't think, made enough money. Well, let me double check here. Okay, I, I can look it up too. Les Miserables, according to Box Office Mojo, made uh, $148 million. So is that more then than the number? Then it is, the, yeah. No, number 25 on the list is $233. Okay, then I'm, I'm, I'm stand corrected. Yeah, yeah. Les Miserables, is it on this list? Yeah, I don't even know if it's on here. But anyways, you're you're wrong. You're all wrong. right. Okay, Todd, can you keep going at all? Um, well, I don't know if it's considered. I mean, Wizard of Oz is that considered a remake? Um, potentially, but it's not on the list because that's based on the book, and there were several Oz movies before Wizard of Oz. Yeah, it's it's not on the list of top box office. I, I thought you guys would go farther than this. Okay, so here's what you missed. Uh, number four is Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Uh, number five, It. Number six, oh. War of the Worlds. Godzilla, Clash of the Titans, Charlie and Chocolate Factory. Mm-hmm. Ocean's Eleven, Mummy Returns. Well, the Mummy series. A Star is Born. Um, True Lies. Dumbo, Karate Kid, Murder on the Orient Express. Christmas Carol, Dr. Doolittle, The Departed. The Nutty Professor, The Ring, Robocop, The Day the Earth Stood Still, and The Mask of Zorro. Exciting. Okay. Yeah, I don't know how many of those I would have gotten. I had The Departed written down, but... I All think right, well, that, that was should have counted. Yeah, I don't know. Anyways, that was the better of my two lists, so we'll see how this one goes. So the next <laughs> list... All right, so, so going back to Rebecca. Rebecca was a remake... And also, it was a Netflix original movie. So, uh, my next list is, can you give me uh, the, I I ended up with the top 30, uh, the top 30 Netflix original movies according to IMDb ranking. The top 30 (laughs) Netflix original movies according to IMDb ranking. You're welcome, guys. You're welcome. <laughs> well, okay, so you're talking about movies that were made for Netflix? Movies movies that... Um, Not distributed by Netflix, but made distributed for Netflix. Distributed by Netflix. Like, ne- like Netflix originals. So, like, would Roma count? I mean, I'm just going to ask. Like, Yes. Okay. Can that be my first pick? That can be your first okay. pick, since you're going Great. first. Just wanted that, to make sure I wouldn't is, lose on the first pick. That happens a lot in these categories. That is number five on the list. Todd. Marriage Story. Marriage hey, Story is number three. Eight out of ten on Netflix or on IMDb. Zach. The half of it. <laughs> no. <laughs> Todd, you got anything else? Uh, the Irishman. Irishman's number four. Oh, Beast that would make sense. Beast and No Nation's number six. Um, I mean, there's probably a bunch of documentaries. Uh, do those count? Um, I don't think there's actually any documentaries on this list. 
Okay. This is anything 7.2 or higher on IMDb. I'll give you that. Huh. Yeah, I don't know. I'm probably blanking right. on stuff we just watched, but or something. I don't uh, know. yeah, like the movie we reviewed <laughs> last week Trial of Chicago is number 7. two. Trial of Chicago Seven is number two. Uh, number one, Klaus. Oh, Eight point two out of ten on IMDb. Uh, other ones you missed: uh, Two Popes, Boy Who Harnessed the Wind, I Lost My Body, uh, Mudbound, El Camino, mm. Ballad of Buster Scruggs, Oakja, Dolomite Is My Name. Fundamentals of Caring, The King with uh, Timothy Chalamet, uh, Private Life, Paddleton. Those are all the main ones. Yeah, I've seen all of those. Yeah, dude, come on. I thought that was going to be go a little further than it went. Well, some of those all I right, didn't know well, were Netflix original. I didn't know Private Life was made for Netflix. I feel like yeah. I watched that on DVD. I don't, I don't think I watched that on Netflix. I watched that on Netflix. All right, well... Uh, with a score of six to three, Todd wins. Hooray! You you you've won the Christmas turkey. And uh, let's finish this up with quote of the day. Strawberries, not the cheese. Womack. With a little sex in it. Quote of the day. Todd, to the victor go the spoils. You go first. Uh, I uh, am going to quote uh, an Ebert review of a movie that I haven't seen, but Zach mentions it probably once a month on our podcast. That's Freddy Got Fingered. <laughs> he said, This movie doesn't scrape the bottom of the barrel. This movie isn't the bottom of the barrel. This movie isn't below the bottom of the barrel. This movie doesn't deserve to be mentioned in the same sentence as barrels. This film is a vomitorium of 93 minutes of Tom Green doing things that a geek in a carnival sideshow would turn down. And that's why we love Ebert. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to see the movie. Oh, <laughs> uh, I mean that that when Ebert hated a movie, no one was more eloquent in their hatred. <laughs> it doesn't deserve to be mentioned in the same sentence as barrels. <laughs> They've said that about uh, our podcast too. <laughs> I, I, yeah, that, that could be. That could very well be. All right, I'm gonna go next. Uh, my quote is from uh, Police Academy. Which um, was on my uh, on my list of bad Ebert takes, and I, I just went and found a, a great quote, and this is a good one. This is an exchange between Lieutenant Harris and uh, and Sergeant Mahoney, Mahoney Steve Gutenberg. Uh, Harris says, "Mahoney, remember that nobody screws with me." And Mahoney says, "Well, maybe you'll meet the right girl, and that'll all change." <laughs> yep. I mean. I mean, how is that? How is that kind of witty humor? Zero stars, seriously, <laughs> and especially coming from Steve Gutenberg. We really need a deep dive of that at some point. We do, we do. I've never seen it. Absolutely, you've never seen it, any of them. Nope, you haven't seen any of. Oh man, we grew up on those movies. Uh, okay, all right, Zach, finish this off. Well, I kind of went a similar direction to Todd. Um, my number one, or my quote of the day comes from Ebert's review of Mad Dog Time. Not Mad Dog and Glory, which he liked a lot, but Mad Dog Time, which he said is a movie that should be cut up into free ukulele picks for the poor. And he must have really liked that quote because he actually used that expression in a couple of other reviews. Um, in his review for Southland Tales, he says, I recommend that Richard Kelly keep right on cutting until he whittles it down to a ukulele pick. 
And then for his review of The Core with Hilary Swank and Aaron Eckhart, he says, um, To watch Keyes and the generals contemplate that burnt peach is to witness a scene that cries out from its very vitals to be cut from the movie and made into ukulele picks. So I don't know what it was, his fascination with ukulele picks, but um, ukulele picks and barrels, that those were the things he, he was passionate about. And J-Lo. And, and J-Lo. Not Robin Williams. No. Or David Lynch. <laughs> uh all right and with that that is episode 98 thank you guys so much for listening uh we'll be back at you next week with a deep dive of a film that was nominated for best picture what 45 years ago now is that right one flew over the cuckoo's nest is what we're deep diving next week tune in next week to hear us talk about that until then have fun watching movies and we'll catch you on the flip side Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.